Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young and old and everything in between, welcome to the Joe Feed Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Joe Barbito. There is an Italian specialty store in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, where I had my first cheese revelation. I was eight or nine years old and someone was handing out samples. You know the kind. It was a small cube of cheese on a toothpick. But this wasn't a lucerne dairy piece of pepper jack or colby. This was Toma, an Italian cow's milk cheese that tasted like grass. And it was amazing. I had at least half a dozen pieces before my dad found me and tried it himself. We left for the block that day, and we still look forward to the cheese sections of grocery stores and supermarkets. Everyone I know loves cheese, including my lactose intolerant friends. And as more stores begin to offer a global selection of hand-picked cheeses that include different types of milk, regions of origin, and flavor profiles, one must arm themselves with the appropriate knowledge to step up to the cheese counter and order like a professional. One of the companies that's bringing great international cheeses to the U.S. is Columbia Cheese. Their decades-old approach to highlighting the great heritage of cheesemaking and educating customers and consumers means they occupy a corner of the market that any aspiring cheese aficionado should be interested in. Today, I'm joined by the National Sales Manager for Columbia Cheese, Jonathan Richardson. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me here. Uh, Very excited to have you today. Um... I tried Columbia cheese for the first time at the gourmet, uh, the fish expo, whatever that was back in <laughs> August. Um, and me and my coworkers were around your table, like sharks. I mean, it, we started to feel bad after a while because we just kept coming back, but the cheese you, you had with you that day was excellent. I mean, that's a good sign, right? I mean, we want people to just keep circling back for more and more. That's why we bring so many different types. <laughs> And it, it was such a wide variety, and there were some things I never had before. Like there was the, um, like Ukrainian flag inspired cheese with the yep. flower petals on the outside. That was excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, out blossom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was awesome. Um, and it, you know, I, I went home and I researched your company that day, and I thought this, you know, the ideology of the maker to monger was really interesting. So I wanted to, you know. I guess before we go to the holidays, a lot of people like to have cheese boards and they like to do that. You know, let's let's educate the people a little bit on what's out there and, and you know, how they can have a better cheese board uh, for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. Let's start off uh, high level with Columbia Cheese. Could you give me a brief background of the company, what the mission is and what they set out to do? Right. So Columbia Cheese is first and foremost an importer, right? So our main function is to bring together the best cheeses we can find in Europe, get them to the US, get them approved by FDA, get all of the the packaging ready for the US market, get the uh, quality up to the level that our customers expect. uh, And that, you know, sometimes is affected by the shipping process and the logistics. And then to deliver those cheeses as the cheesemaker intended to the best cheese shops and restaurants that we can find in the United States. So it's really about kind of, doing the best we can to represent those exceptional cheeses uh, as as they're supposed to be in the U.S. market. Your title, National Sales Manager, what does that entail? So what I work on, you know, we're a small company. We're four people full-time on Columbia. Um, And really what my position encompasses is everything from some product selection Uh, and working on our compliance for FDA. We do this foreign supplier verification program, doing all of those kind of things, all the way through to uh, facilitating the customer orders. Um, And really, you know, the the best part of my job is doing what 
I was doing when I met you, which is going out into the market with the cheeses, getting to share things with people that they've never seen before, um, and really just kind of turn people on with just a little bite of cheese. You know, that's that's the best days for sure. Yeah. So obviously you're great at your job because I still remember going to your table probably more than maybe any other table at that you know fair or whatever that was that day. Um, and uh, I want to talk about the kinds of cheeses you bring in because you mentioned that you specialize in the best European cheeses. I know you talked about like the Swiss kind of like cheesemakers, special cheeses that you like to bring in. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the way I like to think about it is unlike a lot of importers or, you know, th there, there are a lot of people that work for one specific producer or they might work in one specific country. And I think that what we have done at Columbia is put together a stable of cheeses from across the most historic cheesemaking areas of Europe, um, and really in kind of two categories. So I like to think about it like we have thoroughbreds and we have unicorns. So as far as the thoroughbreds, you know, there are a lot of Gruyeres in the marketplace. There's Telegio in the market. You know, there are certain things, Gorgonzola in the market. So what we're looking for are the things that really exemplify the best that those cheeses can be. So on our end, that means working with the most knowledgeable cheese agers or selectors in Europe, and then going to see as many of these dairies and producers and cheesemakers as possible, and to get a feel for what makes this dairy more special than that dairy. Um, what makes this cheese uh, higher rated or, you know, in our view, like a world-class thoroughbred version of Gruyere. So in, in, the, in that case, it's about working with the oldest affineur in Switzerland. It's about their connection to the historic place. And then of the, of the 160 dairies that are making Gruyere right now, they already, you know, they, they bring that down to about 25 dairies that they're working with. Um, from those 25 dairies, what they see are rankings that are made by uh, a, a consortium of cheesemakers and cheese agers um, and milk farmers. And what they do is they all score blindly these cheeses. And what they're looking for are the cheeses that are most Gruyere, the most Gruyere of Gruyere, right? And so that's what we're after. So we know that we're never going to have the least expensive Gruyere in the market. We're never going to have the highest production Gruyere in the market. What we're looking for is a cheese that just is as close to the platonic ideal of Gruyere that we can find. And we think that that's what 1655 is. Um, that's what our Telegio, we think, we think that's what that is. That's what Gorgonzola, that's what our Gorgonzola is. And as we spend more time with our cheesemakers, st you start to map out what is making them more special. And, you know, it, it's, it's the things that I think we understand a lot in the kind of artisan food world, which is the more things that are done by hand, the better, right? So the fewer robots, the better. And that's milk robots, that's cheese making robots, that's, you know, the, the only place we really like to see robots are in flipping cheeses in a cheese cellar. That's a great place for the robot to work. Um, but when we see two or three generations of a family over a vat scooping curds and putting them into the molds to make gorgonzola, then it's pretty easy to understand why it doesn't have this kind of like rancid peppery finish, like a lot of the ones that I'd encountered as a cheesemonger, right? And so you start to kind of notice these things. Um, so then on the other side, we deal with, 
unicorns. And the unicorns are things like Hallerhocker, things like Alplossum, things like Vringebeck from Sweden. These are cheeses that are made in a single site by a single cheesemaker. Um, they generally, in our in our grouping, it's it's generally multi-generational cheesemaking. Um, we see, even if it's a new dairy, then that dairy is something that has has come out of the cheesemaking family. So a lot of the dairies date to the end of the 19th century. Um, it's fairly typical. And then uh, some of these cheesemakers who we work with have then built a new dairy in the last 10 or 20 years or expanded their dairies, but it still has that connection back to this really long cheesemaking past. So what we don't get are uh, kind of mid-career shifters like we see in the US. So the part of the reason that the cheese scene in the United States has been so vibrant is that they've been able to kind of throw out the rule book and they've said, well, okay, I, I don't want to be doing this anymore. You know, it's a lot of kind of career change. And they decide, well, what does my milk want to do? What kind of cheese do I want to make? And the and when I was a cheesemonger, I felt like that was uh, just really cool, like really sexy that the, that the young dairies here were able to kind of do that. And then as I, as I matured and I saw some of these European cheesemakers who were doing the same thing, and that might mean that they were Appenzeller cheesemakers for the first 20 years of their career. And then they switched gears and started making a cheese like Hallerhocker. You know, that's kind of Walter Ross's story. Grew up in an Appenzeller dairy. His brother makes Appenzeller. His dad made Appenzeller. And for all intents and purposes, he mid mid career shifted to a new cheese um and it's and that's the kind of like that's the kind of excitement that that for us is is kind of the hallmark of a unicorn cheese so long answer but <laughs> so you have your thoroughbreds which are i have the most gruyere of the gruyeres and you have your unicorns which are the you know a dairy specializing in the one specific kind of cheese, like you were saying, the Happenzoller, is that how it's pronounced? Well, and not the, and in this case, the Hellerhocker. So, Hellerhocker. yeah, yeah. So, so a cheese like Hellerhocker is, is one of these unicorn cheeses. It's something that, that arose from a uh, historic cheesemaking tradition, but really modernized and kind of uh, you, you know, really flip the script on what a cheese from a specific historic region could be. And, and that's the kind of thing where when we put it down in front of somebody like you, it, you know, in, in what is generally, a, you know, unfortunately a sterile environment, right? Like we meet a lot of people in, in supermarkets or at trade shows and, you know, it's probably the 50th cheese you tasted that day. But the thing about a unicorn cheese is you, and what we, what we see a lot is people put it in their mouth. Thanks. You know, and they walk away. And then they come back about two minutes later and they're like, what was that? Right? Like, what did you just, what just happened? And, and that to us is like, you know, that's where these unicorn cheeses get exciting is they just, they kind of blow people's minds a little bit. So do you, you personally go to these locations in Europe where you like watch them make cheese and stuff like that? Or is that someone else on your team? No. So we go, um, you know, COVID was such a bear because we didn't get to go over for a couple of years. But yeah, no, we go over many times throughout the year. Um, and it's kind of on, on a few different angles. So, you know, some of it is just um, relationship building with the cheesemaker, really trying to understand what they're doing. Um, it might be product development. So, you know, we'll get a call that, hey, we're working on something new. Wonder what you think of it. Can you come over? And and the difference between tasting it here and tasting it there 
is you can sit at a table and have a vertical tasting of seven different age profiles for a cheese that they think is getting close to being ready for the market, right? So we can taste all these different variants of it. Um, and then there's some element of it that is concerned with compliance. Uh, so we need to go over and do these little kind of cursory audits of the dairy. So we just, you know, check location, see how their testing regimen is and, and go through their process as is outlined on their HACCP plan to make sure that all lines up for when the FDA, because the FDA, when they come to audit, they come to us first and then they will go over to the dairy to do their inspection and all of that. So that's part of it. And then we take customers over. So the best part of the job is typically once or twice a year, we take a group of cheesemongers from the United States and we take them over and just kind of blow their minds for a week straight. So, you know, we just went over in September. We try to we try to focus these trips around two different things. So either um, there's a Des Alp, which is a, a kind of a harvest festival in Switzerland that happens uh, around Gruyere, uh, around the Gruyere region. So on the third Saturday of September, basically the cows that have been up in the mountains all summer long, they've been milked and either the milk's being brought down for regular village Gruyere or they're making alpage Gruyere. So these cows make their way down um, on the third weekend in September. And it's a really nice focal point for cheesemongers, right? You do, you have the chance to see the cheese being made, but you also get a sense of the culture that's coming behind it. You know, it's it's pretty easy from so far away to feel disconnected from your food in a way. But to stand there and to see, you know, four generations of a family um, parading their cows through a village that they've been in for five generations, it just, it, it really helps you understand what's at stake for a cheese like Gruyere or a cheese like Hellerhocker um, and, and just re reignite that connection back to back to the history of, of the item. So yeah, so that's, so we try to do that as much as humanly possible. I mean, for myself, it's such a good recharge. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to get lost in a, in a web of Excel spreadsheets and, uh, you know, all in order it's taking and all of that. And then to go back and actually be able to, to smell the cows really does help once in a while. I think in the, uh, biggest example of it's really a small world. I'm fairly confident that my girlfriend's family was at that festival because I saw pictures and she was telling me about it of people taking cows down a mountain to like parade them through a yeah. village. Yeah. Was this this year? Yeah, it was a couple. Yeah, I guess it was like a month and a half ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the one we go to is in a little town called Charme. Um, it's fairly close to where our Gruyere is aged in Boule by Fromage Gruyere. Um, and it's just, it's a, just a charming town. You know, they're not averse to tourists. You know, they know they have, they have a couple hotels. They've got some restaurants that are open when you actually want to eat, which is somewhat rare in Switzerland. Um, and there's also the really nice thermal bath right in the middle of town. So you can watch the cows, go to the thermal bath, come back to the cows. It just, it makes for a nice day. And, you know, what we more than ever really understood about the time during COVID was the way in which our work is, um, carried through to the finish line by the cheesemonger, right? So any opportunity we have to take these people who do this frontline work and to get them over 
to just a nice day on a mountain in Switzerland is just a pleasure because it's, you know, they were, these are people that were on the front line for two years with very little support, very little, you know, these aren't, these are hard jobs. And so, you know, it was a real pleasure to be able to take people over this year, especially. Do you have a most memorable trip, um, whether it was with Cheesemongers or just your team going there, um, but something that really sticks out to you as either an aha moment or like a this is worth it moment, but something big? Yeah, I mean, this past February, so we have, I've been with Columbia for 10 years, more or less, I think more. Um, and Adam Moskowitz, who's the owner um, and president and, you know, chief of Columbia Cheese, uh, he and I have spent a lot of time in Switzerland, in Germany, um, in Italy, visiting the cheesemakers, really, you know, getting a feel for what's going on on that side. Um, but this past spring, we started working with a new cheese make, well, they're, they're fifth generation cheese making family, but Yumi is the name of the supplier. Yumi is uh, the kind of front for this, this multi-member Glauser family. They are Emmentaler makers by history, They but they make a lot of raclette. If you tasted raclette that day, that was their raclette. They make that little belper cannoli, the little grating um, hard cheese and all of that. And so, you know, coming out of COVID, we hadn't been over for a long time. And we went in February and went to see uh, Walter Ross at Hollerhocker, went to see Norbert Sieghart, who does the Alp Blossom with Albert Krauss. And we were able to see these guys. And then we went over to Yumi and it was like being on a different planet from what we were used to. You know, these people are very, the people in the Yumi universe are very, just very young and like motivated and very like active. And whereas what we're, what we're very much used to are, you know, these like third and fourth generation cheesemakers who are very like steady, the, the guys at Yumi were, are just a little bit different than that. And so being able to kind of immerse ourselves in their world for a couple of days really like lit a fire for us. You know, it really was a, such a great kind of in a weird way, like a homecoming of like, new new cheeses and this and this new relationship and these these new kind of crazy people to meet um and then you know flash forward to september we were able to take a, a group of cheesemongers to go visit these people and to and to just show them like so there's also this going on and the juxtaposition between um the the Gruyere where you see this you know really there's so much about the thousand year history of Gruyere cheesemaking when you're in this you know very old castle and you know the, the, with the cows and everything but then to see um, what's this the very new facility that Yumi's working with you know where they have five generations of cheesemaking that are being funneled through this really modern facility um, with lots of traditional cheesemaking but in these, in this very kind of new, uh, very forward thinking manner, it was just great. You know, it just really like, like our business felt very new again that day. And, and that was needed. You know, it was really hard to keep your batteries charged for a couple of years. Um, so doing that was, was great. And these guys are also, you know, they, we, we, we were able to take these, these folks up to the top of a mountain and have a barbecue that they had set up on top of a mountain. And I, and I was telling Adam at the time, you know, I don't think I've ever taken cheesemongers to a place where they 
started, you know, where they're, they're not just calling their boss or calling their coworker, but they're calling their mom, you know, and to be able to take people and see them have that experience, because they too spent two years locked in a, in a room, you know, they were locked together at a cheese counter. So the fact that they're like standing and can see out over this beautiful horizon in the Emmental, um, it was just, it was a really special day. You know, it's, it's one of those days that makes you very much appreciate all of the hard work that goes into all ends of the business. So yeah, I think that that's a day I'll, I'll remember for a long time. It sounds incredible. Like that sounds like the end scene of a travel show where they put together the whole budget and they brought the whole crew together and they're like, now let's go for the money shot. Yeah. And then, and then, and these guys, you know, like, so the next day we, we did a little more work around the area. Then they were like, Hey, do you guys want to go for a swim in the river that goes through burn? Cause we'd sell this cheese called Aravasar. And so, you know, the Ara is the river that goes through burn. And we were like, yeah, that's exactly what we want to do actually. And so we, we were able to kind of like put the little dot the eye on the trip by just taking this swim in this freezing cold river um, that just like floating down the center of burn on a random Wednesday afternoon. You know, it's just, there's, there's much worse ways to spend your time. And it really gives you, you know, so much of, so much of these experiences are about appreciating the people and the land and like the culture that this comes from. Cause it isn't like here, you know, and, and, and it's, you know, it looks good on, you know, it, it looks good in a picture, these mountains and the snow and the skiing and Switzerland has this kind of very photogenic history or, you know, very photogenic appearance, but to actually like sort of be immersed in it for a few days is, is really, is really special. So we've mentioned that there's a lot of history that's involved in cheese making and there's these five generational families and there's, you know, it's so much more than just a block of cheese at the store. Um, I don't want to be too broad with my question, but the question I think I want to start to answer is how do people become smart about cheese? And not just in the sense of like, I know what hard is and I know what soft is, but okay, I know what flavor profile to expect when I hear it's from this region, or I know the texture I'm going to get. Where do you start doing that as a consumer? I think at the cheese counter, you know, I, I think that we're really blessed in Chicago um, and in really a lot of places here now in the United States that there are still cheesemongers working on cheese counters, because I think that is like the, that's the front line as far as we're concerned. You know, it's a place where um, are, there are great books like Anne Saxelby's book was is such a good book. You know, there's like the old Steve Jenkins cheese primer. You know, there's like there's a million books and, and they're really great. But what's really nice is to be able to put a taste with a name. You know, that's really what the experience at a cheese shop gives you um, is that capability of saying, I need a soft cheese for, you know, my, my, my favorite when I was a cheesemonger is uh, this guy that came in when he goes, I need a soft cheese. And I said, oh, okay, what do you do? What are you doing? He's like, well, it's, it's on, it's for on a boat. <laughs> I was like, okay, but like, what a great, like open, you know, that's an, that's an open palate. So it's, it's great to be able to go and taste three or four or five cheeses kind of in a family figure out what you like, kind of talk to the cheesemonger. Why do, you know, what is it about this? Why do I like this more? Is it the, is it the added fat in, in the, you know, the added cream in the cheese? Is it, do I prefer washed rinds or bloomy rinds? You know, and, and a good cheesemonger can really dig down into that conversation and generally enjoys it a lot more than just cutting another pound of brie, you know, for, for the next person that comes in. You know, this is the, the joy of the job 
really is um, translating people's needs into cheese in a way. And so, yeah, so ch cheesemongers, I think, are, are, the, are the primary way. And like you said, you are an ex-cheesemonger yourself, correct? Yes. How many years did you spend uh, cheesemongering? So I worked, um, I spent six years as a cheesemonger, um, started right after, well, right at the end of 2001. Um, so did that for six years. And then I worked for a distributor here in Chicago for about six years, um, working as just a salesperson for the distributor. And then I've been with Columbia for 10 years. Wow, that's a long time to sell cheese. Yeah. So two decades of cheese, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny because I started kind of during the, you know, people are, you know, it's, it's, it's been a hard few years. And I was like, yeah, I remember Freedom Fries. Like there was a time where I was working at a cheese counter and people wouldn't buy French cheese because I, I don't remember why. Do you remember why? I don't remember why we were anti-France, but people, you know, I can't take French cheese to my uncle's house. He won't let me in the door. And I'm just like, okay, you know, and so we just been through so many like cycles in the last 20 years in this business. It's kind of funny. So I, I guess then for you, given that you have all of this cheese experience, um, does it seem like cheese has like gotten more popular that the variety of cheeses have gotten more popular or you know what is it because i feel like when i was younger and this could just be the fact that i'm like i'm no longer a child but you know you go online these days and it's hard not to see beautiful pictures of cheese boards and people bragging about their favorite cheeses is that has there been a shift since you got into this business i think so i think that the the audience is younger and the performance is younger and so it's taken on, you know, it's captivated something in the younger generations that I think is probably something related to attainable luxury. You know, I think that that's a part of it. I think that along with um, wine, along with, you know, there's certain things that are that are approachable and that you can have in your home that that make your day better, you know? And, and at this stage of, you know, late capitalism, I think that the younger generations are learning how to find that balance. You know, at least that's, that's what I hope, you know, they may not necessarily want to drive a $90,000 giant SUV, and they may decide that what is better for them at this time is a little better food, a little better wine, a little better, you know, whatever that is, you know, it's those kind of simple pleasures, simple luxury. I think that it was really um, brought into focus during COVID, right? Like that was such a huge um, moment for home entertaining, um, home entertaining yourself, you know, no longer, you're not necessarily putting together something to impress your neighbor or your friends. You're putting together something because damn, like I need a treat and it's Friday night. And I found, you know, whoever this, whatever delivery or pickup you could do with a cheese shop or with an online retailer that could bring you really good cheese, really good meat, good wine. And, you know, tinned fish, I think had a huge moment during COVID, which is funny. Um, and, and being able to sort of assemble these things on your own and take a picture and send it to your friends and be like, well, this is, you know, Friday night party is, is, you know, like this is, this is what's going on in my house tonight. 
And I think that's that's what it was kind of meant to be, you know, like these, it, it's meant to be um, just a little bright spot in what can be kind of a hard life, right? <laughs> so why not eat well, at least? Yeah, I, I like that. It's attainable luxury. We don't need a 90 grand SUV. I just want to have a piece of cheese that makes me feel good at the end of a long week. Yeah, and I think that that has been paired with the changing face of the cheese counter. You know, it used to be, and and still a lot when you go to a cheese shop in Europe, it's 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 funny to bring cheesemakers here and to take them to cheese shops because they're blown away that it's like twenty five year old people super excited about cheese, and they're like, we like how do we how do we infect Europe with this? They're like, if we could just get European cheesemongers on board with the culture of, of, of what's going on here, um, it would be really helpful for us because there it's still, you know, very much, um, very traditional and very kind of quiet, you know, we're here, um, you know, with, we, we do this event, the Cheesemonger Invitational every, you know, a couple times a year. And it's just generally a lot of like young people who are extremely excited to tell the story and to share these cheeses with people. And I think that that translates to the customer really well. Um, and that becomes like the basis for these cheese boards or becomes the basis for like just insane pairings and like all these things, all this kind of like um, broader culture of what these, what these foods have become um, is really driven by that. You just mentioned that the face of the cheesemonger and the cheese counter in the States is very young. So is this not a young person's endeavor in Europe? Is this more of like an old timey thing to enjoy cheese? Well, in general, um, you know, a lot of the places that we visit are in smaller areas, right? So the cheesemakers tend to not be in the cities, which makes a lot of sense. Um, And so the cheese shops, a lot of them are attached to the cheese dairies. And historically or traditionally, what you would have is the cheesemaker's wife would be would run the shop. So in a typical Gruyere, in a typical Gruyere dairy, you have the cheesemaker who is generally a man making cheese in the dairy, and then in the front is kind of the the town market, the the little village bodega essentially that's run by the cheesemaker's wife. Um, and just the the face of cheesemaking in Europe in general is is aging you know they're it's they've had a struggle getting young people involved in cheese making in all parts of europe um it's just it's a hard job and i mean i understand you know when we have successful cheese dairies where there is um you know an heir apparent that you really hope is is gonna be interested in carrying on the family tradition. Um, and more and more, it's a struggle to, to get the children involved. Um, that's why, you know, part of the Yumi excitement for us was that it's a very young organization. You know, there are the the elders who are who are still in the dairy making cheese, but all of the all of the all of the people who were out on the street and and who are doing the the kind of more innovative work there are younger than me. And that's just such a great thing to see because it's it's increasingly unusual. Whereas here, I think that there's something about, um, there's something about, if you were to look at the profile of a cheesemonger 
in the United States, they tend to be educated, worldly, curious, you know, it just, it attracts a group of people that um, is just really special. You know, like it's a lot of literature people, a lot of people that studied classics, you know, there is no cheesemonger university, unfortunately. Um, so what we pull in are a lot of people from kind of the humanities who in their twenties or thirties are kind of like, and like myself, I was just trying to figure out what to do. And I wandered into a cheese shop one day and was like, this is pretty interesting. And you know, now 20 some years later, I, I can't imagine having done anything else for the last two decades of my life. You know, it really, uh, I was, I did a cheese class last week at St. James Cheese Company in New Orleans. And they're, they're, the director of the class is Molly. Um, they put together this program about Savoy, right? So it was about cheeses of Savoy, which are kind of pan-European where Savoy is started as, you know, this it's France, but it's also Italy and Switzerland. And it's this kind of region that, that rose and fell over the years post-Roman empire. And it's, it's, it's very interesting. And, and the way that they set it up was to kind of tell the story of this rise and fall of this kingdom through the lens of cheeses. And this week they're doing um, war and cheeses, where it's cheeses that either are connected to war, the wartime economies or, you know, these things. And I'm just like blown away. Like, this is how I want to, I was so thrilled to be there. This is how I want to spend my Tuesday night. Like I get to be there for free because I brought the cheese and I get to talk about it. But the way that these things are conceived of now, just my, my 25 year old cheesemonger self, you know, that's still in there is like, wow, that's exactly what I wanted to be doing 20 years ago. And now they are, now there's an audience for it. And the room for this kind of historical um, lecture about cheese and history, it's a, it's a bunch of 30 year olds who are like loving the wine, loving the cheese. They're so into it. And I'm just like, yes, like this is working, you know, like in a town like New Orleans where there is plenty of ways to spend your time, right? And this is like, they have a full house on a Tuesday night. I just, it was great. I love that idea of, of war and cheeses. And I mean, there's a book I read uh, this year, it's right behind me called Milk. Um, and yeah. it's the, hist the history of dairy. And he talks about like, you know, how different like socioeconomic gobbledygook has led to increases in like, you know, non-milk, non-cow's milk drinking or whatever. And it's so interesting to see like, you know, the parts of history that it's more than just, oh, well, this is a, a hilly region. So there's more sheep's milk. It's like, well, you mentioned Savoy and how, you know, all the history there has led to the changes in cheeses. And I, it sounds incredible, right? To, to look at it through that lens. It's an endless rabbit hole. Like it really is. And, and I think that that's really the thing that keeps me coming back is especially if you can if you can visit places right and you can and and you start to put together like a bit of a um like a like a mural in, in sure. your brain is mural the right word yeah i think so or like a yeah like a like a you know you start to you start to look at well why are why are most of the cheeses in the closer to the city why are they white why are they creamy why are they young why are they small go up on top of the mountain. Why are these, why are these now 70 pounds? Why are they super hard? You know, why are, why are they a year old? And then everything in between. And that was the other thing about this, this class last week was about 
was that, that exact thing, right? And like what milk, how are we using milk in these different ways historically? So for a thousand years, we have a pretty good history of cheese making in Europe. Um, and to watch how that develops regionally is something that like, does, does it help me sell cheese? Probably not, but it really helps me get up and, and like get excited for it. So yeah. I mean, it just like it, it just keeps it will keep you coming back in the same way that I think wine probably does. Is there a cheese right now that um, maybe you're currently selling, you're looking to sell something maybe in the portfolio at Columbia that you're like really excited about at the moment? Yeah. Um, well, so this this time of year is really great for us because we do. We, we kind of specialize in mountain cheeses and this is really the season for them. So historically, these are cheeses that were made in the summer. Um, they would be about four or five, six months old. So like they're all hitting the counter right now, historically. Um, so we just took delivery on all of our Alpage Gruyere for the year. And this is like a very great time for, for these cheeses. So um, these are cheeses that are just made on, on wood fires in copper kettles all by hand, uh, you know, the curds are brought out with a cheesecloth by hand in these mountain dairies. They're only made from about May to about the end of September. Um, they, we take them after they've aged for about a year. And they're just, they, they just take you to a place. Um, there's, you can smell the wood fire in the cheese. You know, you can taste the pasture. They just really like embody that style of cheese so perfectly they distill the pasture they distill like a thousand years of cheese making history and they're it's always a treat you know they always arrive and you go oh right i love this yeah great so you know that's this time of year uh we just started working we just took delivery of a cheese called tegel which is a kind of an offbeat swedish cheese that I, I visited there in January of 19 and we, and we always loved this cheese tegel, but it was a 70 pound piece. It was a 70 pound square. Swedish cheese tends to be a little more expensive. The logistics are complicated. It just, there's a lot of factors that go into it. And so what we started doing is kind of considering what if we quartered the cheese before it went into the brine and so we did that. And then we did different brining periods for a, for a while and then aged it out for a year, then a year and a half. So it's been this like huge process to try to dial in this cheese, which is now a different format. And we just took delivery last week and I tasted it and it's amazing. And I'm like, and it's kind of in that same mountain cheese family. So I'm thrilled about that. And then all of the Yumi stuff. So you know, we're, we're working with this cheese, Belper Canole, that is this little tiny ball that's covered in salt and pepper and has garlic in it. And for the longest time, you know, I visit a lot of, a lot of restaurants, a lot of kitchens, and we'll taste cheese. And yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a really good Gruyere. We have, you know, cheeses that they recognize, unicorns that they don't recognize. And then, but what I notice is, you know, they're tasting, that's great. And then you pull this weird little ball out of your uh, cooler and shave it onto whatever they have sitting there and everything in the kitchen stops. And they, like every chef walks over and looks at you like, wait, what do you do? What is that? What are you doing? And like having that, I mean, it really is a pretty good dopamine hit to like have to to watch people who are extremely talented 
and have kind of seen it all. You know, there are a lot of chefs who have worked all around the world and they've done, they've worked in all these different restaurants. I mean, none of y'all work in just one restaurant in your life. You know, it's like this constant like merry-go-round. And so to be able to bring something into that environment um, that's, that's new, you know, that's like, whoa, um, what are we, what are we going to do with this? You know, not, it's just, it's, it's great. I mean, that's a really exciting feeling and kind of another battery recharge, which is nice. So like I said, at the start of this, uh, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, uh, people are going to want to serve cheese, right? That's pretty much a given. Um, uh, kind of as two parts, what's something maybe that you're going to have at your table uh, for the holidays this year? And then maybe what are some recommendations that you might give to people that are entertaining and want to impress their friends? Right. So I really, you were talking in your intro about Toma, um, which Toma is like, I'm, I'm so, I, I sort of have a little bit of an obsession with the, of what Toma is, right? So Toma tomes you know this style of cheese is um all over europe and really unheralded you know these these get referred to a lot as like table cheeses so these are kind of like they're all they're all rounders they're like you know these this is a style of cheese that wouldn't be in the front of the shop it's the cheese that the cheesemaker brings home it's the cheese that you can you can have for breakfast lunch and dinner and snack. And it just, I find them to be really captivating. Um, they're a huge challenge as a cheese importer or a cheesemonger because they don't jump across the counter at people. You know, these are really like the most austere thoroughbred in the stable where Gruyere obviously like, I think you should always have a cheese like Gruyere or Hallerhocker on a cheese plate because it really does just kind of like pop for people you know there is that moment of like of that on on my table definitely those but definitely a toma as well you know i i just i i randomly was able to bring in this this very um very austere northern italian toma um it's it's the latteria is the style of cheese and we just really adore them. And so I have some in my fridge. I'll bring some by for you to try. I, if, that, if that's a style of cheese that you've appreciated in your life, I think this, and it's not something that, it's just something you won't encounter very frequently. Um, so like, we'll have that. Um, I always take uh, the, the Gruyers and the Hollerhockers. What I really like to put on a cheese plate lately are um, like very, uh, like, I'm trying to think of the best the best way to put it. You know, I, I think that a lot of cheese boards get built around this idea of having a cow, a sheep, a goat, a hard, a soft, a blue, where what I'm really more interested in these days is focusing on more of less numbers of cheeses, frankly, and just really letting people kind of sit with a cheese um, for a little bit longer than I think that they're used to. So instead of having, you know, you don't need to have 50 things on a cheese board having a really good Gruyere, a really good little like Robiola um, and, and, a, and a blue cheese that might be surprising to, to you know, like we do this Chiraboga blue that's basically like butter in the form of blue cheese. You know, so, so things like that, I think are really, 
I, we, we like to surprise our guests when we can with our cheese, right? I don't under, you know, for me, I'm not going to put cheddar on a cheese board on, on a holiday. You know, I, there's definitely a place for it. You know, I wouldn't have a Super Bowl without it. I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a staple for a reason, but I think for, if, if you're entertaining at home, it's really nice to kind of, to, to take the knowledge you've gained and to expose your guests to something that like is, is really truly special for them. Absolutely. Um, well, Jonathan, we're, we're getting close to the end here. Um, I mean, this has been just such an informative show and to hear your experiences and learn more about cheese has been really great. And I hope people can take something from this. Um, I guess my, my final thing I'm going to ask you is for, for people that want to just learn more about cheese, right? Uh, we talked about getting yeah. smart about it. Um, if I'm just deciding now, okay, I got to get a book about this. I got to go watch a, a movie about this. I got to do something. You talked about going yeah. to the cheesemonger and talking to them. What else can people do to learn more about cheese, You know, embrace it more as a culture and, and have some fun with it? Well, I would encourage people to go visit a cheesemaker. You know, I think that Wisconsin has so many opportunities. You know, if you're on the East Coast, there's so much in Vermont. There's the festival circuit is back on. Um, come to the Cheesemonger Invitational if you happen to be in New York or San Francisco. Um, we've done it here in Chicago. Go to go to tastings and events. And I think that like exposure is such a huge thing. If you can travel, then then visit European cheesemakers. I mean, I've never shown up at a cheesemaker's uh, dairy where they haven't at least a wondered how I got there or B wanted to share what they make. You know, this is a labor of love. So if you go to the cheesemaker, go to the cheesemonger and really immerse yourself in it. Um, books are great. Uh, tasting is, is even better in, in my personal opinion. And finally, if people want to follow along with Columbia Cheese, look at all the pretty kinds of cheeses you're importing and learn about the crazy stuff that you guys are doing, how can people uh, keep up with you guys and learn more about that? Um, MakerToMonger.com. And we're all over Instagram. And Cheesemonger Invitational is all over Instagram. Um, that's a great resource for people. Uh, it really, you know, there's, there's a lot of perfect bites, perfect plates, pairing ideas, uh, cheese usage ideas. You know, it's, it's so nice to be able to, to give your guests, not just a, a hunk of cheese on a plate, but kind of a composed bite that brings in different elements. And I think this is where, you know, the cheese board culture is really contributing so much to what we do because they're kind of codifying this and they're, they're promoting it. Um, I love that. I also would encourage people, especially, I mean, here in Chicago, we, we, I think we'd be remiss not to mention cheese sex death, which is this amazing Instagram, uh, run by a local Eric Kubik, um, who puts on this amazing Instagram, and book and you know kind of she's she's building this empire of like really forward thinking cheese mongering and pairing and it's just it's really cool um to check out and i mean instagram really is just such a such a cheese kind of fest these days especially mine but i guess that's how algorithms work right they see like one picture of cheese and all of a sudden it's only cheese <laughs> yeah it's all cheese now yeah well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. This was really great. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. My guest today was Jonathan Richardson. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the show. 
Glad you could tune into today's episode of the Joe Feed Yourself podcast. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the show. Subscribe to the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at Joe Feed Yourself. And remember what Anthony Bourdain used to say, your body is not a temple, it's an amusement park. Eat something good, and I'll see you soon.